I am a lover of history, especially American history. And so this morning I want to start with a little history lesson. And I'm going to begin by asking a question. Now to make sure that things don't get out of hand, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand if you know the answer. If anyone blurts out the answer, they will have to stay after church and write on the board, I will not be disruptive in church 100 times. But here's the question. Of the 45 presidents that our nation has had, beginning with George Washington to Donald J. Trump, who has served in that office as president the longest? In other words, who is our nation's longest-serving president? Who knows the answer? God, oh, my goodness, right there. Who is it? Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Indeed, you are right. You get an A for the answer. Interestingly, he served in that office as the 32nd president from 1933 till his death in 1945. And during that time, he won four presidential elections, all of them by landslide, in both the Electoral College as well as the popular vote. And by the way, I looked this up. All four of Utah's Electoral College vote, as well as the popular vote here in Utah, went to FDR. And he is regarded, I think, by many as one of America's greatest presidents. Interestingly, no one can serve longer than him anymore because of the 22nd Amendment, which limits a president from serving no more than two full terms. If you're, again, familiar with your history, you know I think that was adopted in 1947. But here's what's interesting. On the 6th of January, 1941, at the close of the president's State of the Union Address to Congress, Roosevelt shared his vision for what he wanted the world to to be as soon as the war was over. Here's what's fascinating. At that particular time, and this is really hard to believe given our current policy and the alliances that we have with Europe and also in the Pacific, but the U.S. at that time was maintaining a state of neutrality in regards to Germany's aggression in Europe as well as Japan's aggression in the Pacific. And Roosevelt, knowing that it was just a matter of time before the U.S. would be forced to get involved, they didn't get involved until, again, if you know your history, until the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor 11 months later on December 7th. But in that address to Congress, Roosevelt shared four freedoms that he believed people the world over should enjoy. Those four freedoms, and that's what that speech was called, the Four Freedoms Speech, were freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom from want, and finally, freedom from fear. You know, I read that address, and you can actually watch it online because of YouTube, but this is what Roosevelt said. He said, we look forward to a world founded upon four essential human freedoms. The first is freedom of speech and expression everywhere in the world. The second is freedom of every person to worship God in his own way everywhere in the world. The third, he said, is the freedom from want, which translated into world terms means 
economic understandings which will secure to every nation a healthy peacetime life for its inhabitants everywhere in the world. He said the fourth freedom is the freedom from fear, which translated into world terms means a worldwide reduction of armaments to such a point and in such a thorough fashion that no nation will be in a position to commit an act of physical aggression against any neighbor anywhere in the world. Friend, that obviously is wishful thinking. But then he went on and he said this, that is no vision of a distant millennium. It is a definite basis for a kind of world attainable in our own time and generation. That kind of world is the very antithesis of the so-called new order of tyranny, he's talking about Hitler here, which the dictators seek to create with the crash of bombs. And then he said this regarding the United States. He said, this nation has placed its destiny in the hands and heads and hearts of its millions of free men and women and its faith in freedom under the guidance of God. Freedom means the supremacy of human rights everywhere. He said, our support goes to those who struggle to gain those rights and keep them. Our strength is our unity of purpose. To that high concept, there can be no end save victory. You know what FDR was saying? He saying, said that the four greatest needs that the world has, the four greatest freedoms, are freedom of speech, freedom of worship, freedom of want, and finally freedom from fear. You know, what's interesting is that later on, Norman Rockwell provided some paintings of those four freedoms. They appeared on the cover of the Saturday Evening Post, and they were later used to raise war bonds. The four freedoms were, again, the freedom from fear, the freedom from want, the freedom of speech, and finally, the freedom of worship. Now, friend, with all due respect to the former president, as wonderful as those freedoms are, and they are important, I want to remind you this morning that the greatest freedom needed by man is not freedom from fear, it's not freedom from want, it's not freedom of speech, it's not freedom of worship. My friend, the greatest need of mankind today is freedom from the tyranny of sin. And that freedom is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ on the cross. You know, maybe you've never thought of it in terms of this, but the gospel message is a liberating message. It is a message of freedom. It is a message of emancipation. And so often we present the gospel as if it's a, a message of enslavement and bondage. Friend, Paul in the letter to the Galatians is writing to them and he's pounding home again and again and again the message of the gospel. And he says it's a message of liberation 
from sin. Now, just to remind you something of the background of this letter, Paul, on his first missionary journey, had established a gospel foothold in the region of Galatia, which is in today modern Turkey. He preached a gospel message that salvation comes by faith alone apart from works. He said that no sinner contributes anything to their salvation. It is totally a work of God. All the sinner does is he reaches out in faith to God with an empty hand, and that hand is given salvation. I love the way the old hymn writer put it in the wonderful hymn, Rock of Ages. He said, nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Vile I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. That's great. And what happened is that when Paul went there, people got saved. They experienced the fullness of salvation personally. They were given a new nature. They had the Holy Spirit taking up residence within their heart. And the body of believers was doing well. They were advancing. Good things were happening. The churches were established. They were growing. And outreach was taking place. But as so often happened following Paul's departure, false teachers came in and they began to challenge the message of Paul. They began to challenge him as the messenger. And they said, if you are going to be God's people... You have to become a Jew. Now, the region where he was in was made up primarily of Gentiles. And so they couldn't become Jews genetically, but they argued that they could become Jews ceremonially through the rite of circumcision. And so what happened is when Paul got wind of what was going on there, he writes a letter where he defends himself and his gospel message. And he says that the gospel of faith is the true gospel. And any other gospel is to be damned. It is to be cursed. He said these people are propagating essentially a salvation of faith plus works. They were saying, unless you acknowledge these works, you cannot enter the kingdom, you can't be justified, you can't be forgiven, you can't be saved, you can't enter the eternal kingdom. These false teachers were giving an all-out attack on the gospel of grace and faith. And as you read through the book of Galatians, which I hope you've done several times now, what you find in this six-chapter letter is Paul pounding again and again and again and again the truth that salvation is by faith alone apart from works. Now, when you come to chapter 5, Paul is reminding them that Jesus Christ is the great liberator. He's the great emancipator, the redeemer, and that they are free. Look what he says. He says it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. He says you are free. Now, before anybody gets too worked up and think that that means we are free to do as we please, I want you to drop down to verse 13. We're going to get to this in a couple of weeks. But he says, you, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but 
Do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love. Listen, freedom in Christ does not mean that you are free to do as you please. You know what freedom means? It means that for the first time in your life, you're free to do the right thing. And what's more, you've been empowered by God the Holy Spirit. And we're going to say a lot more about that in the coming weeks when we get to verse 13. But Paul says you're free. Now what exactly does that freedom entail? Well, it means that we're free from the wrath of God. We're free from the power of sin. We're free from the curse of the law. We're free from the tyranny of Satan and his dominions. We're free from the fear of God's impending judgment. We're free from an accusing conscience. We're free to live with a new kind of power in our life. We're free to love and give ourselves to others. We're free to have immediate access to God the Father We're free to relax in God's presence and enjoy life. We are given a freedom from sin's dominance in our lives. And friend, these are great and wonderful freedoms. And Paul in chapter 5 is beginning by stressing the importance of maintaining them, not giving them up. And what he's going to do in verses 2 and following is he's going to speak about the results or the consequences that will be yours if you go down that road of giving up those freedoms and embracing a legalistic lifestyle. But before we look at those consequences, I couldn't help but as I was preparing this message, ask myself the question, Paul, why are you getting so worked up over this? Come on, buddy, slow down. You're going to break a blood vessel. You're going to blow a gasket. Take a Valium. You know, settle down. Don't get so worked up, Paul. Why get so bent out of shape? Well, friend, the reason first and foremost is because the gospel is worth defending. Because without an accurate presentation of the gospel, eternal souls are at stake. And when we go out and we present an improper gospel message, people are unable to be saved. But I think secondly, the reason Paul got so worked up over this is because those people in the first century and people even to this day easily surrender the truth of the gospel. You know, I don't want to sound political when I say this, but the bedrock of this nation has been our freedom. As FDR said, the freedom of speech, the freedom of worship, the freedom from want, the freedom to to live your life as you see fit, the, the freedom to discipline your children how you see fit. And slowly but surely, the liberties that we enjoy as a free people in this nation are slowly being eroded away. And friend, there is such a thing as a slippery slope when it comes to freedom, politically. 
And what's true politically is also true spiritually. I found the words of John Hanneman particularly meaningful. He wrote, we are prone to letting the heavy yoke be placed back on our shoulders. We can be seduced by any number of different voices. Religious leaders may charge that we are not living up to the real Christian standard. The world tells us we are worthless. Friends tell us we disappoint them. Parents say they will, not love, they will love us if we do better. Spouses point out our faults and withhold their affections. Now listen to what he says. When we hear these voices, we are immediately tempted to engage the work ethic engine that insists I can do it. I can do it. I think I can. I think I can. Sounds like a children's book. I think I remember reading one like that to my kids. And he says, we put our necks back in the yoke and try to earn approval through performance, placing ourselves under law once more. Friend, that is ever so true. Listen, whenever you think you have to work to earn the favor and love of someone, you are under that person's yoke and that bondage. And Paul sees here a very real danger that we're going to do that in relationship to our, in regards to our relationship with God. And you know what he's saying here? He's saying, don't do that. Stand firm, resist it with all your might. Don't buy into the notion, the lie, the falsehood. That to win acceptance with God's means we have to perform. Listen, God loves you. And he wants to be there to encourage you. And we have to remind ourselves daily that we've been set free. And, and all too often we take that freedom for granted. What Paul is saying here is that freedom needs to be vigorously defended and guarded. And it requires constant diligence. Each and every day we must take a stance for the freedoms that are ours and when we fail to protect it deliberately and consciously freedom will be lost. And we see it all the time. We see churches, we see individuals who are forever trying to put a yoke of bondage on people. And what happens is their lives are absolutely miserable. And I am convinced that the most unhappy people in the world are people who are living in legalistic churches. And that's what Paul's talking about here. And we're going to hit these, point, these points hard in the coming weeks. Well, because freedom is something that's worth defending, Paul in verses 2 through 4 sets out three consequences, three inevitable outcomes that will be yours if you believe that salvation can be attained by legalism. Notice the first one. It's found in verse 2. He says, mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, here's the first, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Wow. You know, that's an incredible statement when you think about it. I want you to think about who it was that is saying this. 
Paul says, I, I want you to realize who I am. He says, mark my words. This is, this is Paul, the apostle. A circumcised Jew who was proud of his heritage, proud of his Judaism. Who lived his life under the law till he came to Christ. He says, I was a Jewish patriot. And he says, I want you to realize that if you embrace circumcision as a means to salvation, Christ will be of no value to you at all. Friend, the issue that was facing the first century Christians, the hotbed issue of the day, was circumcision. They were saying exactly what some Judaizers said in Acts 15, unless you were circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Friend, that's legalism. That's legalism in its blatant, insidious form. You have to keep the law. There's a bunch of do's, there's a bunch of don'ts that you have to do in order to be saved. And Paul here responds forcefully and vehemently and boldly against this heresy. And it's almost as if he's underlying his words. He's putting them in italics. He's putting three exclamation points behind them. And he says, mark my words, if you do this, Christ will be of no value to you at all. And by that statement, he's saying that contrary to the Judaizers' teaching that circumcision is necessary for salvation, I want you to realize that circumcision can actually keep you from being saved. Because you've perverted the gospel message. Now just for the sake of full disclosure, when... Paul talks about circumcision. He's talking not about it in the sense that we understand it today as a medical procedure that you may choose to or, or choose not to uh, have upon your little baby boy. You know, surprisingly today, there's a lot of debate in the medical community about the validity of that procedure. Just as an aside, I remember when I was with the Christian Medical and Dental Associations, uh, the regional directors had as part of their responsibilities to go to the various medical conventions and conferences that were held around the nation, and we would represent CMDA. We would set up a booth there, and you know people would come by, and you shake their hands, slap their back, give them a howdy-do, tell them about CMDA, try to get people to join. And my job was to represent the organization at the American College of Surgeons as well as the American Academy of Pediatrics. And so, and oftentimes I would take Connie with me, and it was a lot of fun. We got to go to the cities of Chicago and San Francisco and New Orleans. And the one that I enjoyed the most was going to the American Academy of Pediatricians. Pediatricians know how to, lot of, know how to have fun. Surgeons, it's a different story, okay? They're just a different breed altogether. But I can remember when I was at those conventions, I would be walking around when I had the time, and I had no idea this was going on, but there were booths there at that convention against circumcision. And some of them, believe it or not, were even calling for its reversal. Don't ask me how I'm not even going to go there. Friend, that is not what Paul has in mind here. First century circumcision was the procedure that would identify a male as part of the covenant community of Israel. 
He's talking about circumcision in regards to an act of obedience to the Mosaic law. Truth be known, it was almost like an amoral issue without spiritual significance. It was something that was practiced uh, by people back then traditionally. In fact, he says in verse 6, For in Christ neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. He says the same thing in verse 15 of chapter 6 where he says neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. Circumcision is really no different than having your appendix removed. It's totally unrelated to one standing before God. But... Here's the key. These legalists, these Judaizers, they were insisting upon circumcision for salvation. And so a non-issue became a critical issue. And Paul's point is simply this. Instead of contributing to their salvation, circumcision actually prevents it. Because by demanding, by demanding circumcision for salvation, they were declaring that faith in Christ was insufficient. Circumcision was the principal legalistic issue of the day. And if he were writing today, it would be a different issue. It would be the issue of, let's say, well, good character, or baptism, or church membership. Or social activism. And when you begin to place those things as conditions for salvation, as a means of salvation, it changes everything. And Paul says when you begin to do that, that beautiful, perfect, complete work of Jesus Christ on the cross becomes, as it were, null and void. Let me see if I can give a good illustration of it that demonstrates the problem of this kind of theology. There was a man who had an old baseball, and that baseball was autographed by Babe Ruth, which made that baseball extremely valuable. One day this man decided that he would sell it, but he was worried, however, because the signature on that baseball was badly faded. It was difficult to see. And so this man, in order to make it clear, he took out that baseball and he took out a, a marking pen. And he decided that he would carefully trace over the letters, Babe Ruth. And what that man did, in effect was obliterate the real autograph. So that by the time he was finished, he turned something that was priceless into something that was now worthless. And friend, it's the same thing with Christ. Christ's finished work cannot be refinished. It can only be restored. What Christ did on the cross and through the empty tomb must be received by faith alone. And when you and I no matter what it is we're adding to it, when we try to add our good works to his work, it renders that good work null and void. 
What Paul is saying here is that trying to get right with God by circumcision or doing anything else makes Christ utterly useless. Notice the second consequence. It's found in verse 3. He says, again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. And again, I love how he, he starts this off. He says, I want you to listen up, folks. I'm a circumcised, lifelong Pharisee till my conversion. And I want you to know what it is you're getting into. He says, every man who does this, who lets himself be circumcised, is obligated to obey the whole law. Friend, the point here is that while the favorite theme of the legalist was circumcision. Circumcision is just a small part of the Mosaic law. And you can't stop with circumcision. You've got to embrace the whole law. You've got to embrace the dietary laws, the ceremonial laws, the tithing laws, the religious feasts, the laws on dress, the laws on how to treat animals, the law on how you're going to farm, and all, all, all of those things. Friend, when it comes to the law of God, you can't pick and choose. And today, legalists are doing that all the time. They're picking and choosing which laws they're going to obey. And Paul is reminding them, and he's reminding us today, that it's all or nothing. When it comes to the laws of God, if you think that's how you're going to make it before God, if that's how you're going to be made right before God and be on your way to heaven, it's all or nothing. It's a package deal. And the weakest link in any doctrine of salvation by law or works is that salvation depends on what we do. And we can never quite be sure that we've done enough. That's why, in case you haven't realized it yes, yet, the most frustrated, unhappy, miserable people in the world are people who think they can try and earn their salvation. That's why the most unhappy people, I think, in the world are people right here in this valley. Because the vast majority of them are thinking, I can, I've just, I'm going to earn heaven. And the fact of the matter is that they think about it they spend sleepless nights. Notice the third consequence, which sounds even more serious. It's found in verse 4. He says, You who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. That word alienated is a violent word. It means to be cut off from and what he's saying here is simply to add circumcision or works or rituals or ordinances to salvation is to lose Christ. Seeking to be justified by the law is to fall from the sphere of grace. Now, friend, he's not talking about losing your salvation. That's not at all what this verse is talking about. He's talking about turning away from God's gracious provision for sin and turning towards legalism. And he's saying here, you've got to make a choice between the religion of works and the religion of grace. And he's setting forth the dire, awful, 
consequences of legalistic Christianity. And he's saying, I want you to shudder at the thought of trying to contribute to your own salvation. And again, a lot of people are like that. They're thinking they've got to do this and do that. And their lives are absolutely miserable because they have no concept of grace. Well, in verses 5 and 6, after having laid out the consequences of rejecting salvation's freedom, Paul answers the question, if I can't achieve a right standing with God through law or works, how do I obtain it? What he says here in these verses is that the only thing that counts in regards to our right standing with God is, living, is a living faith expressed through love. Look at verse 5. He says, For through the Spirit we eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. I want you to observe carefully that twice over Paul says we receive salvation by faith. He says it in verse 5. He says it in verse 6. And the righteousness that enables us to have a right standing with God and allows us to be declared not guilty and righteous before God at the judgment that we are looking forward to is something that comes to us by faith. And then he says in verse 6 that that faith is expressed in love. Friend, mark it down that genuine faith always works itself out in love. In some kind of a changed life. I've got to say it, I think one of the great scourges in the church today is that the church is filled with people who believe things intellectually, they say the right words, and for the most part, they avoid the worst sins but they are deceived because they're still thinking they're going to get to heaven by works or their human efforts. And Paul says the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. You know what that means, friend? It means that your faith in Christ ought to change the way you live. It makes a difference in how you respond to your enemies. It makes a difference in how you drive on Bangor Highway or I-15. It makes a difference in how you treat your spouse and your children and your grandchildren. How you treat the dog. Not so much cats, but how you treat... No. <laughs> it makes a difference in our attitude toward the poor and needy. And the attitude that we have towards death. We're going to say more about that. When we come to chapter 5, verse 19. But here's the major takeaway. Friend, you and I have been freed. We have been delivered from sin's dominance in our life by faith. Now in a moment, we're going to sing a hymn in closing that I hope is familiar to enough of you then when it comes to singing it, we can sing it loud and victoriously and with great confidence. But as with many of the hymns that we are so familiar with, we really don't know the background of them. 
And that was certainly true with the hymn that we're going to close our service with in a moment, which is at Calvary. It was written by a man named William R. Newell, who taught Bible and theology at the Moody Bible Institute. In fact, he wrote a number of books that are still in print today. In fact, I have a couple of his books in my library. They're, they're a major staple for any preacher's library. But William R. Newell, we got a picture of the guy, was born in 1868 in Ohio. His father was a preacher, but he was a troubled and unruly boy who was causing his family a great deal of grief. And so again, his dad, who was a preacher, wrote a letter to the president of the Moody Bible Institute, who at that time was a man named R.A. Torrey. And the pastor requested that his son be allowed to attend Moody, even though he was an incorrigible boy. His dad said that he needed to come under the influence of daily scriptural teaching and the fellowship of young people, and he needed to have a wholesome and honorable lifestyle. And in that letter to Tory, he asked that his son enroll in that school. Well, Tory wrote back, and he told him that Moody Bible Institute was a place that trained future missionaries and pastors. And then he said, it's not a reform school. I like that. But you know what? That didn't deter Newell. He continued to write letters. He continued to plead his son's case. And finally, after several weeks, R.A. Torrey, the president of the Moody Bible Institute, gave in. And he said that his son could attend the Moody Bible Institute under three conditions. First of all, he had to attend classes faithfully. Secondly, he had to obey all of the rules. And thirdly, Tory said that every day, Bill Newell had to drop by his office and talk to him. Well, the father and son agreed, and he went to the Moody Bible Institute. R.A. Tory said he never saw a young man with more problems. Well, as time went by, Bill tried desperately to be a good student. He obeyed the rules. He stopped by the president's office every day to say hello. And days became weeks, and weeks rolled into months, and small improvements came here and there. Until one day, young William R. Newell went into Dr. Torrey's office with a face aglow, and he announced that he'd become a Christian. And the two rejoiced together. He became a model student. He later graduated. He went on and earned an advanced degree in theology. And then, amazingly, came back and taught at the Moody Bible Institute. And while on staff there, he wrote a poem which he considered extremely meaningful. He said, as I, write, as I read what I had written... I realized that it was a word picture of what had happened to my life. As I said, we're going to sing that hymn in a moment. I'm going to ask the musicians if they would to come forward. But what happened is he took that poem to the office of Dr. D.B. Towner, who was the head of the music department, and he left the words with him. And later the two met in the hallway, and Towner said, Bill, 
Bill, I was so taken by the poem you gave me that I went immediately to my studio and composed a tune. I feel that it could be the best song that either of us will ever write. You know what the words were? He wrote, years I spent in vanity and pride. Carry not my Lord was crucified. Knowing not it was for me he died at Calvary. He wrote, by God's word. I want you to think about these words. We're going to sing them in a moment. But I want you to think about these words as we we review them before we sing them. He says, by God's word, at last my sin I learned. Then I trembled at the law I'd spurned. Then my guilty soul imploring turned to Calvary. He wrote, oh, the love that drew salvation's plan. Oh, the grace that brought it down to man. Oh, the mighty gulf that God did span at Calvary. His final stanza was, Now I've given to Jesus everything. Now I gladly own him as my king. Now my raptured soul could only sing of Calvary. The chorus is mercy. This is what I love. Think about this in light of what we've talked about. Mercy. There was great and grace was free. Pardoned, there was multiplied to me. And then I love the last line. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. Friend, if you don't read those words and get choked up, shame on you. I don't think you've understood the depth of where you were delivered from. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, we'd invite you to do so. To acknowledge before God that you're a sinner, that your only hope for salvation is Jesus Christ and what he did for you. For those of us who know Christ, I want us to stand right now. And we're going to sing this hymn. And I want you to sing it with full volume, with full voice, as unto the Lord. I want you to sing it with with emotion in your singing as unto God. Let's sing. Years I spent in vanity and pride.